Hello and welcome to the Long Game Podcast. I'm your host, Mehdi Yakubi, and this is the Long Game Podcast. In each episode, we explore the ideas, technologies, and businesses that will help us overcome the challenges of our time. The episodes feature long-form conversations with tech industry leaders, scientists, entrepreneurs, and thinkers. Some guests will be well-known, others will be soon, but they all share a profound similarity. They have demonstrated unusual insight and see today's challenges with a unique lens. When I'm not recording podcasts, I'm building Lifetizer, a product to help people optimize their blood glucose levels for better health, improved energy levels, and optimize longevity. And I sent a weekly email newsletter called The Long Game. I hope you enjoy the show. My guest today is Samuel Gil. Samuel is a partner at GME Ventures, a Spanish venture capital firm that invested in Flywire and 21 Burdens, to name a few. He is also the founder of the excellent newsletter Suma Positiva that covers technologies and how innovation can be positive some. I discovered Samuel on Twitter through his series on longevity and his interest in health, and I wanted to get him on the podcast to discuss his perspective on investing, founders, longevity, and more. We start the conversation by exploring the Spanish tech ecosystem, the opportunities and the challenges, and how it's related to international tech hubs. Then, Samuel explains his investing philosophy, how they help founders build successful companies at GME Ventures, and what makes a great founder. After that, we talk longevity, and what got him interested in the field, and the other opportunities in health optimization. We finished the conversation talking about the two books Samuel loved recently. Please enjoy my conversation with Samuel Gil. Samuel, welcome to The Long Game. Thank you very much. I discovered you through your newsletter, Suma Positiva, that I really enjoy. It's uh, my weekly uh, it's my weekly meeting with the, with the Spanish language, and I also really like the, the, the types of topics that you, that you usually cover. And uh, so I, I really wanted to, to start this conversation by, by maybe talking a little bit about the Spanish tech ecosystem and, and how is it holding on right now during the, the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much, first of all, for your kind words uh, about the Suma Positiva. I really, I'm really glad that you enjoyed it. Uh, about Spain, um, it's interesting. So I think the Spanish ecosystem is still very young, but very vibrant. So I think in these kind of things, you cannot accelerate time. And, you know, it's taken 70 years to build Silicon Valley and we we can learn things and, and move quicker, but it's still very early in that sense. So, but things have changed a lot in the last 10 years in which we have been uh, active investing. So we see more and more teams with more ambition, uh, you know, some success stories providing the ecosystem back with angels, with experienced executives, with new founders, and so on. But of course, we've got also our our challenges here. Uh, we don't have so many experienced uh, executives. Uh, the critical mass of, of tech companies is still more or less small. Uh, Growth capital is still very scarce. So if you want to raise a round of 10 millions with uh, Spanish investors, uh, it's not going to be very easy, even though um, to the contrary, uh, right now there is an abundance of of early stage capital, which is quite good. Uh, And also I think in general, Spain is really interesting because there is, uh, also an abundance of, of junior talent. We've got like really good technical universities and also really good business schools. They are consistently ranked among the top five in the world. And we are really capital efficient here. So you can build a company here with much less capital than in, in other places, not only in the US, but, but also in Europe. That that causes that the valuations here are quite attractive. So when you invest here early and the company succeeds, uh, you can make a, a great return on that. 
Yeah, so I, I lived in, in Spain, in Barcelona, and I explored a little bit the tech ecosystem, and I could clearly see that it's that is growing and that a lot, a lot of people are, are starting companies in, in Spain. Mm-hmm. And right now, we can see multiple hubs in uh, in the Spanish tech ecosystem. Yeah. So I'm curious, what are currently the, the challenges? What are the, 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 the things that are making uh, the, the Spanish tech ecosystem uh, less successful than it could be? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so some people are saying that bureaucracy doesn't help you to start a company in the sense that you have to become kind of a one-person company. You have to start paying taxes even before you you are generating any revenues. So that's causing some trouble, especially for younger people trying to start companies. Uh, and also, as I said before, I think the biggest challenge right now is to find people with enough experience in the in some areas, especially product, for instance. Uh, I think this is not exclusive to Spain. Uh, I think it happens all over the place in in Europe. Uh, and sometimes uh, one thing we try to to fight against a lot is that the Span the Spanish people tend to believe always that whatever comes from abroad is better than we've got here so we can we, we need we work a lot with our entrepreneurs trying to help them you know to think bigger how to create global companies uh, you know also the one one positive aspect also of the spanish ecosystem is of course we've got some cultural links to to latin america which is a huge and huge market growing population and so on but Of course, there are also challenges. There is not quite as straightforward as you might imagine at, at first sight. Yeah, totally. So I'm curious to explore a little bit more the, the opportunities that you see right now in the in Spain and and more generally speaking for for the Spanish ecosystem. Are there some uh, fields or 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 opportunities that you think are going to be uh, massive for uh, for Spanish tech in the in the next let's say five to ten years? Mm-hmm. So traditionally, we were here stronger in B2C companies. And over time, I think we are going to see more and more B2B-oriented companies. Uh, as I said before, um, so, you know, in my newsletter, each week I write about one topic. And that week, I discover people doing amazing things in that field. So uh, last week, I was speaking about um, topic related to neuroscience And few di- few days after that, I got connected with with people doing like crazy stuff in, in that field. So there there is amazing talent here, uh, waiting for you know waiting for the appropriate opportunity to to make that happen. So I'm I'm pretty pretty bullish on 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 the Spanish ecosystem in, in general. And how do you see the the Spanish ecosystem uh, in in the broader scheme of of uh, Europe in general? Like, do, do you, how do you imagine uh, how do you see it related to uh, international uh, tech ecosystem and mainly with Europe? So, how do you see uh, how do you see it uh, uh, being played out in in the next years? Mm-hmm. I think we still have less capital than in other hubs: London, Berlin, Paris. Stockholm, uh, they are they are a little bit more advanced than we are, but I think we are catching up quickly. And one thing that I like a lot is that the European ecosystem is getting more and more connected. And I think that COVID has only accelerated that trend, you know, with yeah. the fact that it's happening everywhere, right? But with the fact that now everything is running on video conference, now somehow the, the geographical barriers have collapsed. And I, I think we're going to see a much more integrated uh, ecosystem. Also, for instance, in the past, we have invested with many European funds and we are getting deal flow uh, from them. And also we are, of course, providing them with, with deal flow here. So we are going to see a lot of collaboration because Europe is complicated, right? In the sense that uh, there are many countries, many languages, many cultural differences. So sometimes having a local partner is a great idea for for a company. So we are going to see a lot of collaboration in that sense. So in the past, um, for instance, VOI 
the micro mobility company. We got invited to invest in that company uh, via Creandum, the, the Swedish fund, because the company wanted to expand to Spain and they, they were looking for some local investor to to serve as a partner for the company. So those kind of things, I, I think, are going to become much more common in Europe. So, so now that uh, geographical barriers are less important with everything happening remotely, uh, do you think that uh, because you know Spain has a, has a much better climate than most European countries, yeah, and still has uh, has very uh, you know very powerful uh, tech hubs? Do you think that that we're going to see uh, more people right now moving to uh, to Spain for this reason, maybe for for a better quality of life? I hope so. I think this is a huge missed opportunity by our government, and not only in the you know in the tech startup ecosystem, but in the broader you know economy. With all the tech giants in the U.S. saying that they are going remote forever, we should be doing something to to attract those guys here. Uh, connecting this with what I said before, that we lack that senior talent, that'd be amazing for the ecosystem here if we could attract those those. Uh, persons here that'd be amazing but i think unfortunately we are not doing enough in that sense so barcelona historically has done much better than madrid in that sense to attract people from from abroad i, I believe because of the you know the, the beach and, and so on that's a, a huge part of it but i think everywhere in spain we should be kind of making a huge bet on that because that that's kind of our future I agree with you totally. Like uh, there are few people, uh, yeah, there are few countries in in the world that are uh, that have a better quality of life than uh, than Spain. Yeah, but quality um, of life sometimes, you know, when we speak about quality of life, it's not only having a good weather, uh, good um, cultural activities, and so on. It's also having the opportunity to work in in meaningful companies, right? So I think that's the missing piece for for Spain to. Because you know here the job unemployment is 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 really really high, so we should be doing something in order to create better opportunities for our younger people. Totally. I want to explore a little bit uh, how you view venture capital and uh, your philosophy around it. So you you wrote a little bit around how to help founders build successful companies. Mm -hmm. I'm very curious about how do you think about this uh, this question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the more I know about venture capital, especially in the early stage, the more I realize that it's everything about the founders, right? So actually everything we do revolves uh, around three questions, right? How can we see, uh, how can we pick, and how can we win the best deals here, right? In our case, we've got a geographical focus, so we invest in the at the early stages of Spanish companies, so our mission is to become the best partner for you know for for Spanish entrepreneurs and help them to create a, a solid foundation from which to to scale and, and achieve success. So everything we do revolves around those three things. Um, in the case of how to see and win the deals, that translate immediately to how can we create the best value proposition, right, for, for founders. And for doing that, you've got several things like, of course, past success helps a lot because increase increases your signal, right, in a, in a world with a lot of noise. Reputation is also super important. There is a lot of information asymmetry, right, when we enter in a deal. So we don't know much. We don't know many things about the company, and the entrepreneur uh, doesn't know many things about the investor. So having a strong reputation is is practically the, the only asset an investor can have. Uh, and in order to pick, what we try to do is to to prepare our, ourselves in in advance, right, for identifying and, and committing quickly when we see one interesting opportunity. Also. It's really important as, as investors to maintain some portfolio construction discipline, right? Around valuation, ticket sizes, and, and so on. So that's, from my perspective, the, the keys in order to, to run a, a VC firm. You, you wrote something around the, the, the idea that uh, asking more questions than giving advice is actually the, the right way to help, uh, to help founders. Mm -hmm. uh, could, you, could you dive a little bit into, into this? 
Yeah, so the way we see what we try to, the value we try to add to the companies is we try to to empower our uh, founders, right? Um, so, and there are many things. I think, I strongly believe there is a lot of bullshit around this concept of value add, right? And we, we try to be, we try to keep our feet on the ground very, very clearly uh, with that. So there are some things in which we surely can help. For instance, we, we can be an accountability partner, right? So um, having someone to share results with on a monthly, quarterly basis, whatever, helps you to keep a little bit the, the tension to, to perform. We can help a lot with fundraising or giving benchmarks uh, in regard to KPIs, metrics. Also, as I said before, we give some signal to the company, right? So if a company gets an investment from a reputed VC, it, it tends to get easier to find talent, to find investors later on and, and so on. And sometimes we, we help the companies with the strategy, with hiring and, and those kind of things. But what we don't do at any, so the entrepreneur, the, the key here is that we try to become a high impact resource for the company, but the entrepreneur decides the intensity of their relationship. So we, we, we help when we are called upon, but we don't micromanage. Right, so we empower the founders to run their companies and challenge them intellectually. And this is where the the question, the questions come come into play, right? So uh, there is a saying here in Spain that that more or less says, translated into English, that you cannot learn in another person's head, right? So it doesn't matter that so. I think we would be doing a disservice to the company telling the entrepreneur what he or she should be doing, right? They they have to to make their own decisions. Uh, most of the cases, of course, they they so they dedicate hundred hours per week to their company. They know everything. They've got all the context. They know everything about their market. Everything. So our opinions are not as good as as we tend to think, right? So the only thing we, we can do is perhaps help them to avoid some um, forced errors and so on. So what we try to do is make some questions to challenge some assumptions or to, to bring those assumptions into the light, right? So we have the advantage of being at the same time in, in many companies, right? For instance, we've got at the moment like uh, 40, 42 portfolio companies, not not... Uh, all of those are still alive or we've already sold some of them, but we are seeing many things in parallel, right? But the, comp the entrepreneur is seeing only one thing, but with a huge uh, depth, right? So sometimes we, we think it's interesting to cross-pollinate some, some learnings from one company to the other, but are, those things are more related to company building and in general terms and not so you know, sector focused or so particular to that to that company. So in our case, we, we strongly believe that making with questions, helping um, clearly state what assumptions, what hypotheses you are taking here, what you are doing to validate those and so on are one of one of the best things we can do for, for our companies, not telling uh, of course the, the entrepreneur what what he or she should be doing. Yeah. So you mentioned a little bit uh, what are you searching in, in in a founder, but I'm curious to explore a little bit more. Uh, did you did you manage to um, to kind of uh, draw kind of a list of uh, the type of characteristic that you're uh, searching in a founder, mm -hmm. or what is a successful uh, founder in in all the in all of the companies that you invested in? And did you do some uh, some mistakes? Like, did you pick some founders that ended up being uh, bad founders? And if so, why? Yeah, definitely. So over time, of course, we've learned a lot about what we like in entrepreneurs, right? So first of all, I think they should bring unique insights into some problems which are important and frequent, right? And it could be both for B2B and B2C companies, right? 
they have to be really passionate about the problem they are solving because as you surely know, they're going to find the uh, ups and downs down the road. In our case, they have to, to have the ambition to build something huge, right? That's the, the VC model. It's not appropriate for, for every kind of company, but, but in our case, we, we need to invest in companies trying to build something really big. Having sense of urgency is also something really important. So getting things done, right? Not being paralyzed by, by analysis or by, by any other thing. Uh, of course, the, the ability to, to attract talent is a, is a great measurement or a great predictor of, of their chances to, to succeed. It also helps to have some international experience linked to that, what I said before. So it's a little bit to combat that notion that everything from abroad is, is better than we, what we've got here. So when you've lived abroad and you've worked abroad, you realize that's not true. So I think having that in mind is, is useful. Also, something interesting there is that some of the best founders, I think, they know what they know and they know what they don't know, right? So they can find those blind spots and and, and surround themselves with, with people who, who can help them there. Of course, to be a founder, you have to be a quick learner. I think that's that's what you do at the earliest stages. You run experiments to, to learn a lot of things. Uh, you have to be able to think independently, right? And to challenge the, the status quo. Almost by definition, what you are doing is, is contrary to, to popular belief, right? So you have to, to be able to rethink things from first principles and, and to, to see inefficiencies or how things might be done in a different fashion. Uh, of course, and something that we do really bad here in, in Spain, I think you have to be a good storyteller, right? So we humans are really fascinated by stories. We learn via stories and we get interested to stories. And when when data is scarce, which is only which is always the case in early stage companies, you have to be able to convey an interesting story in order to attract talent, or attract capital, and, and so on. So I think that's also interesting. Um, that's a huge one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Also, we like people who make the data-informed decisions, and I always make the distinction there between being data-driven and being data-informed. Right? For me, being data-driven is that the data dictates your next move. I think that's wrong. You end up perhaps on a local maximum, right, rather than uh, on a global maximum. Uh, to the contrary, a data-informed uh, decision is one uh, which considers data, but that's not the only thing that you you are taking into consideration. What else? Uh, of course, we can only partner with with people who establish win-win relationship, right? Which we we believe we can. Uh, one of the most important things between one investor and one entrepreneur is having a relationship of trust in which I can tell you exactly what's on my mind at, at each point in time without, you know, um, without you thinking that I'm, I'm taking advantage of, of the situation or whatever. So that's, that's key for me. Uh, and also, you have to know what, what you are playing, right? If you are following this venture capital path, you have to know more or less the rules, what the expectations of the investors are, uh, and so on. So for me, that that's what what we try to to look for in in founders. Regarding companies, because uh, as I said before, it's everything about the founders. But of course, we also look at the companies, the product, the business model, and so on. We we tend to like companies which are highly differentiated, but at the same time easy to communicate. Right. This is something really important companies companies which are obsessed with the user experience so nowadays we are all used to to have amazing user experience so it's very difficult to to bring something new to the market with a super experience uh, 
we also like pretty straightforward and, and scalable business models, right? So the more complexity, in general terms, the more complexity around the, the company, the less we like it. Of course, we love, we love businesses that get easier with time rather than the opposite. So some, some businesses get tougher over time with the scale, but the really good ones get easier with the scale. And this is also very related to defensibility. And we also like companies with kind of a unique culture, right? In the sense that the, the founders bring a certain way of doing things with them. And this is kind of embedded, you know, in the, also in the company and in the way they, they approach problems, they communicate, they go outside of the company and so on. And of course, uh, going more into detail about metrics, we really, at the stage we invest in, we really pay attention to to products uh, which retain their users, right? For us, that's the at the stage we invest in, what we are trying to 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 find is companies with the first hands at product market fit. And for us, the best predictor for that is companies or products with with great retention rates, right? So they, they that proves that the product is solving a problem for the user, for the customer, and they are coming back for it. So it's actually solving it in a, in, in the right way. And that's more or less what we've learned so far that we like uh, about founders and, and companies. And what we don't like so far, answering your question about what went, what what didn't go well in the companies that we have invested. So we don't like complexity, right? And that can materialize in, in several ways, but I think you you get the the concept. We don't like uh, unhealthy growth. So for instance, yeah, of course, uh, as Paul Graham said, startup equals growth, but growth could be can be healthy or unhealthy. And we pay a lot of attention that the growth we are seeing is, is a healthy one. We don't like companies outsourcing some core areas of the business, right? So, for instance, technology or sales or marketing, depending on which business you are in. It could be one or the other, right? Um, we don't like also the companies which are addicted to venture capital. I think that with each round of capital, you should have perhaps, you, you shouldn't do it, of course, but you you should have a route to profitability in mind. Of course, we, we don't invest in companies which are profitable or which are going to be profitable in the coming years, but we don't like companies which never think about it, right? And how, how, to, how to get there. We don't like debt also at the early stages. We don't really like companies which work with financial intermediaries at these stages. We only want to speak with, and perhaps these changes from ecosystem to ecosystem because I've, I've heard that in France for instance where you are it's quite common to use those kind of financial advisors to help you get financing it's not the case here here in Spain it's usually about, about sign even a, a red flag and of course broken cap tables right that happens a lot in immature ecosystems in which after a couple of you know angel round or uh, founders uh, sorry uh, three Fs round the uh, founders are really diluted. That's a that's a huge red flag for us. So let's explore a little bit this one because I, I think it's a huge one and not enough people talk about it. What's a broken cap table, and what are you generally looking for? And also, what kind of uh, founder split do you do you uh, advise? Because there are, there are two schools regarding this question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a broken cap table for us is one in which at the early stage, the founders does, don't have a clear majority of the equity of the company, right? So there is more or less a, a rule of thumb uh, which says that founders should have more than 50% of the companies when they reach Series A, right? Something around that. Of course, that's a rule of thumb and there are exceptions, but more or, le- more or less, I think it's a, it's a good uh, benchmark. 
So in immature ecosystems, what happens is that business angels or small investors, family office, whatever, they invest in companies at the very early stages and they take advantage of that and they end up with huge amounts of equity, right? Because they think they are creating a, a, bet, a better deal for them. But in reality, what they are doing is they are shooting themselves uh, on the foot because they are making that company unfundable in the future by professional investors, right? So, of course, companies at the early stages are not really valued. They are priced. So valuations don't make sense, if you will, from a purely financial perspective. But you have to know the, the game you are playing and the, the rules that that are required to, to play there, right? So founders, if you are raising money, don't get diluted. So everyone knows in a more or less mature ecosystem that you shouldn't get diluted more than something between 15 to 30% in each round, right? So if you have raised a couple of rounds because of that, you, you shouldn't be diluted more than 50%. Do you have a kind of a philosophy regarding uh, the founder split? Because I know that, uh, for example, YC... Uh, ask the founder to have equal split where uh, where a lot of different investors uh, think that it's actually a bad idea and, and one of the, the founders should, should have more. Uh, what's your take on that? I don't have a strong opinion. So, uh, or better said, I have changed opinions over time. So on the one hand, I believe that anything different from 50-50 or whatever is going to create trouble. But At the same time, I can also imagine why having 50-50 can create trouble. So, because of course, uh, there are going to be fights uh, around who is putting more work, more effort. Uh, the idea was mine, or the idea was yours, No, I am the CEO. I have seen both things work, actually, so no strong opinion there. It's pretty similar to the thing that a company should only have one CEO, But they have also seen succeed companies with these co-CEOs, right? Which in theory is a bad idea because, you know, people should always know who is the one calling the shots in the case uh, of a tie or something like that. Right? But I said, uh, no strong feelings about that. So I've seen both things working and both things failing. So I'm not sure about that one. Let's talk a little bit about growth. You mentioned unhealthy growth and you have a great uh, article uh, from uh, from your newsletter around the core action and aha moments. So you quote uh, Shamath, uh, maybe I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say the, the quote. Yeah. So quote, what I want to hear about is the three most difficult and hard problems that any consumer product has to deal with, how to get people on the front door, how to get them to an aha moment as quickly as possible, And then how do you deliver core product value as often as possible? Mm -hmm. So I'm very curious uh, about how do you think uh, about growth? What's your, um, like, what do you think? Uh, how do you think about this, uh, this, this question? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so if you will, we can start by defining what an aha moment is, right? So the aha moment is the first time a user experiences the value of the product, right? So you enter a new website, you download an app, you start playing a little bit around, and it's the first time you realize why that product might be helpful for a problem you've got, right? That, that's the aha moment. And what Chamath says is that, unfortunately, most of the digital products actually don't deliver any value at all, right? And that's the reason why, why they don't retain customers. That's what I said before, that for us, As early stage investors, the most important KPI, the most important metric to track is retention, because it's the ultimate proof that your value, that your product has core value for the user, right? And as long as you are able to provide that value over time, you will keep that user coming back for more. That's retention, right? So retention is kind of the, is like the pillar for for building a, a successful company on top of a digital product. Uh, growth. Um, The other thing is, of course, you, um, apart from a product which solves a problem, you need to have a business model that works in conjunction with some acquisition channels, right? 
So, uh, and that's of course I'm I'm going to in the in the direction of of LTV and CAC, right? So, how much you invest in attracting a customer should be less than the margin, the contribution margin that user gives back to the company over time, right? And that calculation, the problem with that calculation is that is perfect in theory, but really difficult to, to calculate in practice, right? Especially when you are starting and you don't have many months or many years of, of metrics. So I think it's a pretty useful framework for having in mind, but uh, you have to be very cautious at the time of, of using it in, in the practice. So... This is very interesting, and I want to switch gear a little bit and talk about uh, longevity, because you, uh, I discovered actually uh, Suma Positiva through your uh, your three uh, three part series on longevity, mm -hmm. and uh, so I'm fascinated and and I'm passionate uh, with longevity, and I actually uh, work in a, in a related field, yeah. but it's it's pretty rare to find uh, people outside of, of, of the field. Uh, to be interested in it. So I'm very curious about how did you get interested in, in, in longevity? Mm -hmm. What's your story there? Yeah. So some months ago, we, we made public our investment strategy, right? And one novelty of that strategy is that we were going to invest in pre-seed companies. So that, that means uh, we are going to invest in PowerPoint stage companies, right? Then uh, Juan Cartagena, a founder, approached me He told me that he was going to launch something in the field of longevity, right? I knew Juan because we studied together uh, both here in Madrid and Stuttgart in, in Germany. And he was, if you remember the checklist of, of things we found, we look for in founders, he crossed all, all of them, right? So we decided that we were going to support his new his new company in the field of longevity so i started to research the field and i went completely down the rabbit hole right i started reading especially the the work of professor david sinclair at uh, harvard um, medical school and i was really fascinated by by the topic to be completely transparent with you so i, I i've always been really interested in in healthcare, biology, and so on. So when I was about to decide which uh, career I was I was going to pursue at university, I was having some doubts between engineering or, and, and medicine. So that was kind of close to my my interest. So um, this summer I read this this book Lifespan by, by David Sinclair, and I learned so many amazing things about how the human biology works what the amazing discoveries that are being done at the molecular level at the genetic level that um i couldn't i couldn't help myself but digging more and digging more and, and this is a field in which uh, i'm really fascinated by but i i think you you can also <laughs> actually you, you i'm pretty sure you know much more about it than, than myself but it's really really fascinating so one of the One of the ideas that captivated me about the work of, of David Sinclair is that kind of his main idea is that aging is a disease, right? It's not something inevitable, but it's something that we can combat, right? So it's kind of our body knows or has the recipe to work perfectly, but over time, it kind of, kind of you know, forgets How to, how to work properly due to this epigenetic noise. It's, I, I found the, the idea fascinating and linked to so many other fields and areas. Of course, it has to do with nutrition, with uh, fitness, with sleep, with uh, supplements, with, with so many other things, right? But I think that that, that idea was really novel and really powerful, and it changed the way I... I looked at many things, so those are the kind of the of the crazy insights, right? That that we are looking for the ones that change completely yeah. how you look at 
at something. That's very powerful. I, I had a very similar uh, story. And uh, the, the idea that I, that I keep thinking about is how do we get more people to understand this and care about this? Because you really feel that very, very few people uh, know this. Very few people know that there are a lot of researchers working on the longevity field and that we could be close from, uh, from really uh, expanding our health span. But, but you feel that there is still this, this, uh, this limit that is that not enough of people know it and care about it. So how do you think we could, we could overcome yeah. this and, and speed up the, the discoveries? Yeah. So I think, uh, as you said, we are right now kind of in a breakthrough phase, right? So the, more, the most optimistic people say we are kind of reaching escape velocity, right? That uh, the longer we live, uh, the, the increases in the health span achieved by the medicine are, are more than that, so that we are kind of, we could become immortal, right, somehow, but this is a very optimistic view. But I think that the the difficult thing here is that most of those things that we are talking about have been proved in animals, but they haven't been proved yet in humans, right? So... And of course, it's very complicated to those to test those things in in human beings for ethical reasons, for many other, even for purely technical reasons. Right? How can you how can you make sure that a person is following a you know a, a specific diet for twenty years without any deviation? Right? So with with rats in the laboratory, it's pretty easy to to do those. Things, but with humans, it, it gets really messy pretty pretty quickly. So I think it's going to take a lot of time to have like you know those clinical trials or whatever you want to name them. So it's going to take time. So for us, the ones uh, for the people right now, you can you can either wait, I know, twenty to thirty years in order to have those. Or you can be a little bit more adventurous and try things by yourself, right? Things that haven't been proven yet totally on humans. For instance, fasting, right? So I'm pretty sure that in the next years we are going to see many, many studies done in humans. But so far, we've got only studies done in yeast, in rats, in, you know, in, in those kind of, of animals. And the results are pretty clear. So we can either try those things in ourselves and see what happens, or we can wait. But perhaps if we wait, then it's going to be too late for us. So that's the that's the the key for me. So I think many, and in general, I think um, me, the medicine we know is very centered in disease, right? So they wait until you feel sick, you go to the doctor and they prescribe you something to make you feel better. But this approach is completely the opposite, right? Is what should you do now in order to not get sick later on? But I think that, that our healthcare system is not is not has not been designed to work that way. So it's it's not gonna be easy in that sense. But at the same time with you know the huge wave that that there is in in fitness right so people want to fit is the new rich right I, I think that synthesizes a, a lot of what's going on right now so m many many people are interested more and more in their fitness and that brings you i think very close to your health because fitness yes. is a very important part of health and then you arrive at uh, precision fitness uh, human dashboards consumerization of healthcare, all those trends, right? Uh, which I believe are going to push us in the direction of longevity, but perhaps in a more indirect way. I know what, what, what you think about it. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Like, actually, it always starts with fitness. You, then you start to take care a little bit uh, of your diet. And then you, you you go to the next step. You start to take care of your health. And then you start to get interested. And, and you start to really see the positive feedbacks. And you want to do more and, and keep improving your health. Yeah. And at some point, you find the longevity. And you start to really think about longevity. At least for, for me and for a lot of people that I know, it was it was like that, that it, that it happened. 
Yeah, because the tricky thing about this thing, about longevity, health, and many other things for humans is that we are really bad at things with long feedback loops, right? Yeah. So the, the, the tricky part of this is that if you eat unhealthy today, well, perhaps you're going to feel a little bit bad today, but you're going to see the, the effect in, uh, you know, many, many, after many years, same for eating healthy, same for doing exercise. So I think the trick here is how can we use digital technology in order to build good habits and in order to shorten those feedback loops, in order to know that what we are doing pushes us in the right direction, right? And I think exactly. digital products are, are amazing at that. We've seen that with habit create, creating technology can be very powerful. And it's been they used. Are, they are. Yeah. They are very powerful. I agree with you. That, that's actually the approach that we're taking at, at Lifetizer, at the product that uh, we're building. Uh, to help people optimize their blood glucose levels, and that's that's exactly the the, the goal. Because you know, if if you manage to give people uh, a quick feedback loop that they did something good, then you have the reward, and you don't need to wait twenty years to uh, see that you uh, avoided getting uh, type two diabetes, for example. And um, it it can be very helpful because exactly. otherwise, as you said, uh, people aren't necessarily attracted if you tell them that you're going to improve your health in 20 years. It, yeah. It's too far and people don't relate to that. How, how, how are you planning to do? Because I think also these things uh, create kind of a hype in the user that you get like really, really interested, right? But after some time, you get kind of a little bit bored and, and your interest declines. How are you planning to, to keep people interested in, in monitoring their in your case, your yeah. glucose levels and so on. So, so for us, really, the the the, the real example is Strava. I don't know if you know the app Strava mm, yeah. for, for fitness. Yeah. And uh, for us, the goal is to build the Strava for health optimization and longevity because we truly believe that uh, it's through the community and it's through um, you know switching from health as a burden to health as an activity and something that people enjoy that people are going to stay for the long term. Mm-hmm. So this is the approach that we that, that, that we're taking, and uh, it, it's actually um, what people are saying. You know, people are saying the exact same as you're saying. Like, okay, you get interested for a few days, but then what? And this, then what? The the I think the response to to this is a community because if if you're somewhere with people that uh, are your friends or people that uh, you can share with and, and and share your experience and read their experience then it changed completely your uh, your uh, experience so that's what we that's what we want to create because you know we kind of create the product for for us my co-founder and i uh, i mean w- we would be the first user of of what we're building and we we agree with this you know it's like yes you're interested in the first days but then what mm-hmm. and uh yeah, so so that's how we we view it. Where this uh, comparison with with Strava, mm-hmm. I think is uh, is the right one for for what we we're building. Interesting. Yeah, I really love that approach. Yeah. Uh, I want to know a little bit if we take more generally speaking the field of longevity. Yeah. How do you see it uh, evolving in the in the next five to ten years? Some people are saying that um, longevity in twenty twenty is uh, where crypto was in in twenty ten. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's, it's a comparison. Some people agree, some people disagree. What do you think? Uh, I'm really bad at, at doing predictions. I think that the huge advances are going to come from the more biotech side of things or the more, I know, gene editing techniques and that kind of crazy stuff, right? Those are the things that are going to change the the game forever. But I think we are gonna we are still a little bit far from from having that as a commercial technology, right? So I think for the next years we are gonna see more what we've been uh, speaking about recently. So more that how can you create a dashboard of your health, right? Which it's amazing, right? So we. We've got dashboards for everything, but we still don't know what's going on on our body. So if you're lucky, you do a blood test, uh, you know, every year, every couple of years. 
And that's it, right? That needs to change. I agree with you. Just the precision wellness and health optimization is, uh, I think, is going to be the the, the in between uh, to, to the to the um, to reach really longevity. Uh, now this decade, I think we won't get the the longevity therapies, but uh, health optimization, as you just mentioned, with dashboard is going to be uh, is going to be what we're going to get, and it can improve already a lot of yeah. our health. And I think that that change. It will imply a massive change in in mindset. What we said before, I, I think we're gonna we're gonna uh, stop thinking about health healthcare as a reactive thing, and we're gonna start thinking about how can we proactively, you know, uh, manage our health. And, and this is massive also for for the states, right? Because with people living longer, you know. Uh, Lots of unemployment, automatization of work, and and so on. So how they need some relief for the health system. So they need people to take more care of their own health, to live healthier lifestyles, and and so on. So I think we're gonna see a lot of also push from the regulation and and so on. It would be great. It would be great because actually, when when you look at the spendings of the states, you see that they spend a, a gigantic amount on chronic diseases, yeah. and a lot of these chronic, most of these chronic diseases, you can uh, avoid getting them in the first place. Like for example, type two diabetes is a great example. Uh, I know it because I'm working on it, but it's like people can avoid it, and then the states spend trillions uh, on 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 this disease. Yeah. So the only problem is that you need to spend more at first. To save later, and and this is really hard. Uh, you know, you're a financial, so you 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 understand this. But for for the state, it's very hard to spend more, even if they know that they're gonna save later. So we really need to yeah. uh, to find a way to uh, to overcome this because that's the solution. Yeah, we've seen some insure tech companies with that approach, trying to disrupt the most traditional way, right? Uh, but but there are some tricks there, so it's not it's not easy at all, you know. To to no, it's to really hard. Yeah, they they are like super entrenched uh, sectors and, and and companies, and it's really really hard. But I think this is the this is one of the key areas for for the coming years, and and one of the areas in which we're going to see more innovation, more disruption, and um, I love it because I think it's a is is the ultimate yeah yeah exactly is the ultimate positive sum game right it's good for everyone exactly and we need more of this project actually we we're seeing right now in in this hard year 2020 that uh we're not invincible bad thing can happen and we we need to work uh, to prevent those those things and uh technology can really help so i think i think we need to yeah i think we need to work a lot in conveying the, the following image this is not necessarily about living longer, but staying healthy longer, right? It's not only about lifespan, but about health span. And I love that that analogy by, or it's not an analogy, but an idea of uh, Peter Atia about the Centennial Olympics, right? So yes, it's yes. possible for, for a human to be healthy when you are 90 years old, when you're 100 years old. We, we all know people who are 80, 90, and who are still active and enjoying their lives and so on. And, and it is because exactly. they, some of them, uh, they won the genetic lottery, but most of them is because they, they had a healthy lifestyle. And, and that's yeah. within our reach for, for every one of us, right? So That should be our focus right now. I totally agree with you. We can do much better. And if you plan it a long time before, you can actually reach 100 years old in a, in a great shape. And a lot of people are doing it. And we need more people taking this approach of of trying to prevent the disease before getting them. Yeah. So I'm also interested in this field because I turned 40 <laughs> this year. So I, I'm starting to feel old. So I need to get ready for it. <laughs> it's only the beginning. Yeah. So talking about uh, progress and innovation, what are the, the the stuff that you think are super underrated? Uh, you know, I know that you invest only in Spain, but yeah. uh, so maybe maybe what are the, the underrated spaces in in Spain or the the places that you're super excited about, other than longevity? Because we've just been talking about longevity for twenty minutes. 
yeah, so we are in general, so we think we are just getting started with software, right? If you see the, the huge spend of companies in, in IT in general, um, cloud software, right? SaaS is still a very small fraction of that, same with e-commerce. So we might have the impression that we are done with uh, digitalization, but we're actually just getting getting started, right? So we are really focused on, on SaaS in Spain. FinTech, right, is also another huge area for us. Education technology is pretty similar, right, to, to health tech. So yeah. th- this is one of the areas in which the society should be invest a lot because technology is making many things possible, which weren't possible before. And we are really interested on, on that. Cybersecurity. Yeah. With everyone, cyber. you know, yeah, cyber is, is clear. It's, it's another of the sectors really benef- benefited by the um, accelerated digitalization caused by COVID, right? B2B marketplaces, the passion economy. So there are so many things in which to focus on. So we are generalist investors. So we... We, we strongly believe that entrepreneurs are much better than ourselves in, in finding those blank spaces, you know, in the market, in bringing to life new, new solutions for, for those blank spaces. And, and our job is to, to keep our minds open to, to all those new innovations coming to the market. Yeah, this is a beautiful philosophy. I have one last question for you. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the, the best underrated books that you enjoyed recently? Or not necessarily underrated, just something that uh, you want to share with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Stealing Fire. Uh, I wrote about it in the last two issues of the newsletter. It really blew my mind. So it's it's also one book that changed my my paradigm about how the mind works. You know what the, your conscious mind is. You know what it is not. Your identification with your ego mind, right? You are much more than that. You have a huge capacity sitting right there waiting to be accessed, but accessing it is not easy. You have to, there are ancient ways, there are new ways, there are drugs, there are uh, a lot of biases. It's really an amazing, an amazing book. I really, I really loved it. Uh, Link to that, another one which I'm currently reading and I'm also loving is Alchemy. Um, Alchemy. Yeah. It's uh, it's got a, a powerful idea behind it. It says that problems which might be solved with logic would be already solved by now. So the problems which have survived is the is because they they cannot be solved by conventional logic, right? So we need we we need something new, and it also underpins the fact that. We humans, we are strange creatures in the sense that many of our decisions are not logical, are psychological, as, as the author says, right? In the sense that, you know, they, they might seem rational from, from the outside, but if you dig deeper, they are really, really rational. You, you have to change the, the lens with which you, you look at those. We, we are used to look at problems with the economics, uh, traditional economic theory uh, lenses or, you know, with the uh, market study lenses. But, but those lenses are really flawed when, when, when looking at some problems, right? So, for instance, yeah. uh, food, right? If, if, we, we, if you think, so some years ago, some people thought that food could be reduced uh, to some pills with exact amount of nutrients that uh, that you need, right, in order to have a healthy nutrition, whatever. But uh, of course, humans don't don't eat only in order to fulfill that that need. There are many more things attached to food, right? It's a social act. Uh, people spend uh, huge loads of of money learning how to cook, uh, going to restaurants. So. You, you cannot sometimes uh, simplify problems too, too much. So the problems that have survived us 
which are many and, and the most problematic ones, cannot be solved by conventional logic. You have to find these psychological approaches. And I, I think it's a, it's a brilliant approach. Yeah, the example of, of diet is uh, is very good, actually. I totally agree with uh, with this. It makes me think of uh, Predictably uh, Irrational by, by Dan Arelli and, uh, and the whole field of uh, behavioral economics. Yeah. It's, it's truly fascinating because we're really not as rational as we think we are, and it's good to know it. Yeah. It's very important to know it. Yeah, exactly. Well... Samuel, thank you a lot. It was an amazing conversation. I learned a lot. And uh, I really want to thank you for coming on The Long Game today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Hey again, it's Mehdi. Before you leave, I want to tell you about what we're building at Lifetizer. When it comes to health, Lifetizer believes in prevention and optimization. There's no reason to guess what works for you anymore when you can read the messages your body tries to tell you. At Lifetizer, we help people optimize their blood glucose levels through nutrition and exercise to improve how you feel, how you sleep, to get better health and optimize your longevity. Check it out at lifetizer.io and sign up for early access to the private beta. That's all for today, friends, and thank you so much for listening.